Alex has the night off. Uh, I'm filling in for her this evening. But we begin tonight with the Supreme Court. And his name was Hiram Revels. He was born in 1827. Uh, he was a minister in the AME Church. He served as a chaplain for the Union Army during the American Civil War. Uh, and then in 1870, he was elected by the Mississippi legislator to the United States Senate, believe it or not. The first ever black man sent to either body of Congress in our country's history was him. And it is sort of hard to imagine that today, Mississippi was the first state to actually send a black man to the U.S. Congress. But they did. And they did it all the way back in 1870. And then, believe it or not, in 1875, they did it again. The Mississippi legislator sent Blanche K. Bruce to the United States Senate. That is the second time ever a black man was elected to that chamber. And you're probably wondering why or how that happened. And the reason Mississippi was able to actually make history like that all the way back in the 1870s was because of Reconstruction. After the Civil War, Mississippi was forced to adopt a bunch of new laws enfranchising the state's newly freed black citizens. And those laws allowed the state's black men to vote in free and fair elections for the first time in history. And that's what they produced. It was real historic progress in the American South on an incredible timescale. And as you can imagine, the backlash to it was just as swift. In 1890, aggrieved white lawmakers in Mississippi, they passed a new state constitution disenfranchising black voters with poll taxes, literacy tests, a bunch of other stuff designed to make it harder for black people to vote. It was one of the nation's first ever Jim Crow laws. And while parts of that constitution were done away with during the civil rights era, other parts of it actually remained in place. They continued to disenfranchise black voters in Mississippi. There was one amendment in that constitution um, that had a rule barring people convicted of certain crimes from voting, crimes that black citizens were disproportionately likely to have been convicted of. And fast forward, fast forward to 2017, two black Mississippi residents brought a challenge to that law, uh, a challenge that basically wound its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Up until today, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court, that supermajority on the Supreme Court, decided that they would actually not hear the challenge to that law. They decided to allow it to remain on the books. In a blistering dissent, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson quoted one of the authors of that 1890 Jim Crow law. Justice Jackson writes, the president of the 1890 Mississippi Constitutional Convention said it plain. Let us tell the truth if it bursts the bottom of the universe. We came here to exclude the Negro. Nothing short of this will answer. Justice Jackson goes on to say that constitutional wrongs do not right themselves with its failure to take action. Uh, the court has missed yet another opportunity to learn from its mistakes. So on the one hand, it might be surprising that the Supreme Court did not take up this case. But it comes amid a flurry of other controversial rulings by the court in just the past two days. I mean, yesterday, just yesterday. The court rolled back the clock on college admissions by ending affirmative action for minority college applicants. But apparently that did not go far enough in making it harder for disenfranchised communities to go to college. Because today, 
Well, the court's conservatives issued another damning decision, ending student loan forgiveness for tens of millions of Americans who cannot afford college on their own. And to top all of that off, today in the court, well, it issued another ruling overturning a Colorado law that prohibited businesses from discriminating against LGBTQ Americans. In doing so, the court basically opened the door to legal discrimination against gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people across the country. Happy Pride Month, everyone! But in ruling after ruling, the conservatives on this court have worked to turn back the clock on the rights of disenfranchised citizens in this country. Just go down the list, from abortion rights to voting rights to the right uh, to a fair and affordable education to the right to openly express your sexual orientation— even gender identity. This court has made its central mission to undo progress wherever it sees it. We're going to talk about all of those decisions throughout this hour, but I want to start tonight with the big picture. How does America deal with a reactionary court dead set on turning back the clock? And what, if anything, can be done to stop it? Uh, joining us now is Melissa Murray, NYU law professor and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. She's also an MSNBC contributor. Uh, also with us is Mark Joseph Stern, senior writer at Slate, covering the courts and law. So, uh, Melissa, I'll start with you. I mean, just kind of the, the big picture takeaway of what we saw unfold today. Um, people on the surface may think of these cases being very different uh, on the issues that they tackled, even if they are hypothetical, as we said with Chris there. But there is a connective tissue between all of them, as I was just kind of outlining there. Do, do you see that as well, that there is a common theme between all of these cases? I think there's a common theme between the cases we saw this term and the cases we saw last term, especially Dobbs. Basically, we are seeing the court roll back the protections that make it possible and indeed facilitate the prospect of a multiracial, multiethnic democracy, education, reproductive rights, financial security, all of these things that we need in order to have a democracy that is inclusive and includes everyone. And that seems to be the thing the court is railing against. And to be very clear... We had a barn burner of a term last year, and typically right. the rhythms of the Supreme Court are such that one more. Yeah. Yeah, when you have a big one, you take a breather. Right. But no, they had a barn burner of a term this year. It looks like they're shaping up to have a barn burner of a term next year. And the question I think the American people has to ask at this point is, how many barns are there left to burn, or is this court just intent on burning it all down? Yeah, and to that point, I mean, this is, uh, Mark, the the— the Roberts court, right? So I guess my question to you is, is the legacy of the Roberts court now going to be about undoing the progress that has been made throughout the 21st century? That will absolutely be a huge part of John Roberts' legacy, that he rolled back not only voting rights in Shelby County, the holder, uh, but affirmative action. And the very notion that diversity is a laudable and compelling goal that the government uh, can pursue through race-conscious measures, and now through the 303 creative decision that gay and lesbian Americans have a right to equal access in the marketplace. Um, all of those principles have now been bulldozed uh, in an extraordinarily short period of time. And I, I think that in addition to rolling back the clock, John Roberts is reasserting himself and his court as the chief decision-maker in this country. You know, the Supreme Court is very much the number one policy-making body of the nation. And the chief justice, through these decisions, is reminding us, you know, Congress can pass whatever laws it likes. The president can 
roll out whatever programs he wants. The states can experiment. But at the end of the day, we will be the ones to decide what you can do. We will be the ones to say the meaning of the Constitution and to overthrow any contrary ideas that you try to implement in the name of democracy. And I think that is a frightening message that the chief could not have sent louder or clearer this term. I want to ask you specifically about the 303 case, if I can, and and the free speech argument that was made. And I understand that, you know, that applies to individuals. But then when you get to the position of a business, how does a business have a free speech uh, right, so to speak? Well, that's a terrific question, Eamon. Justice Gorsuch today spoke in this opinion as though the prospect of an anti-discrimination law that requires anyone doing business in the public sphere is essentially akin to requiring them to adopt the state's message of anti-discrimination. But that's not really the case. It's a bit of a stretch, yeah. (laughs) Well, Lori Smith, if she were actually making websites for individuals, which is still an open question, uh, she could simply have her evangelical beliefs and she could talk about them and she could espouse them as she wanted to. But the point that Colorado makes is when you decide to enter the public marketplace and provide services, you must do it for everyone who seeks those services without fear or favor for any particular group. And the court today said that, no, that's basically anti-discrimination law is the state making you adopt an anti-discrimination message. And so that should be chilling to anyone in the United States who's from a group that historically has been disenfranchised, has been underrepresented, has been discriminated against, because it means that regardless of these anti-discrimination protections, which exist primarily on the state level, there's not necessarily broad protections for sexual orientation on the federal level. All of these state level laws are now in question because simply individuals can say this violates my right to free speech. It is a compelled message that the state is making me adopt. And the court has essentially blessed that. Uh, Mark, you know, these justices, when they were again going through the confirmation process, talked about how there is precedence and so many of these cases are settled law and they've totally upended a lot of that, obviously, with perhaps the biggest one being Roe versus Wade. But how dangerous, if at all, are the precedents being set by these cases? I mean, what implications do they have for other rights, as Melissa was just talking to? I mean, thinking about not just gay rights, but other minority rights now, do you, you could get somebody who says it is their religious belief not to provide services, uh, you know, because somebody is involved in an interracial marriage or somebody is Muslim or Jewish. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's no limiting principle in Justice Gorsuch's opinion for the court that restricts the scope of this decision to LGBTQ people. Um, it, it seems that it applies across the board to all kind of protected traits. And so one question Justice Sotomayor asked is that the famous case, Heart of Atlanta Motel, in the 60s, when a motel argued that it had uh, a right not to serve uh, black people, uh, would that case come out differently if the hotel had said, well, we feel that allowing black people to stay in our rooms is an expression of support for their identities and their lives. And I think that's very much an open question. So, you know, we focus on these kind of edge cases, the florist, the baker, whatever. Um, But this decision pushes way past that into the realm of all manner of public accommodation laws, as Justice Sotomayor points out. You know, expressive conduct is everywhere once you start to look for it. Uh, The very act of serving a customer can be expressive, even if you aren't creating anything for them. And so I do think that interracial couples, 
uh, religious minorities, women, all kinds of people who face discrimination have to wonder now, have to second guess, you know, if I seek services from this business, is there a chance they'll say, sorry, but my free speech rights uh, allow me to discriminate against you? And as Justice Sotomayor says, that itself, the fact that the court has issued this decree stamps a badge of inferiority on us, on all minorities who will face um, the, the tragedy of this decision. And again, what a difference five years makes that just a few years ago, this court was uh, expanding same-sex marriage rights to the entire country, uh, refused to take the step that it took today in Masterpiece Cake Shop. This is the inevitable result of Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett joining this court. Um, and this is only the beginning of this new line of precedence. We will see how far it develops, but this is really the dawn of a new era in First Amendment law. Did you want to say something uh, in response? Well, Mark said right. something that's really interesting here, and it goes to this question of, like, what is expressive conduct? Ultimately, in this opinion, expressive conduct is whatever Neil Gorsuch and five of his colleagues right. thinks is expressive. And that's another theme that you see in the student loan cases as well. There, the court says, where there is an issue of major salience, a major question, so to speak, it is not up to Congress to simply delegate that authority to an administrative agency to make the decision that they're going to act on these major questions. Congress must specifically delegate authority to address that particular question here, student loan relief, to the administrative agency. But the question of what is a major question is ultimately a question that can only be answered by this court. So in this decision and in 303 Creative, the person that's won here is this institution, the court that gets to say what is speech, what is a major question, and what is the extent of their impact on our lives. Yeah, and I was going to say, to Mark's point, uh, just as a final uh, summary here, it, at the end of the day, it seems like the Supreme Court is legislating these issues. I mean, that you had the affirmative action case brought by billionaires. You had the uh, student loan forgiveness case not brought forward by students. And in both cases, the Supreme Court is making a decision that affects millions. Uh, Melissa Murray, thank you so much. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you as well. Greatly appreciate your insights and your analysis. Uh, we have a lot more to get to tonight. The Biden administration claps back at the Supreme Court decision striking down its plan to forgive student debt, with the president already unveiling his plan B. And later, news that Yet another Trump insider is now cooperating with the special counsel probe. What does this mean for the investigation into the former president? Stay with us. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. 16 million people. 16 million people have already been approved. The money was literally about to go out the door. And then Republican elected officials and special interests stepped in. They said, no, no. So let me be clear. Republicans in Congress, it's not about reducing the deficit. It's not about fairness and forgiving loans. It's only about forgiving loans they have to pay. 
Today, the Supreme Court sided with them. I believe the court's decision to strike down my student debt relief program as a mistake was wrong. I think the court misinterpreted the Constitution. The court misinterpreted the Constitution. That is just a part of President Biden's response to the Supreme Court's 6-3 ruling today, uh, striking down Biden's student debt forgiveness program. Uh, Last year, the president announced a plan to forgive up to $20,000 in debt for individuals with incomes below a certain threshold, largely in keeping with a 2020 campaign promise. But today, uh, in the court's majority opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that mass debt cancellation like the Biden, excuse me, like the one that uh, Biden proposed had to be approved by Congress. But this Congress, with a Republican majority in the House and a uh, thinner than wafer thin Democratic majority in the Senate, well, this Congress has voted against Biden's student debt plan as recently as this month, just 29 days ago. Uh, The Senate voted on party lines to terminate the student debt relief program. That was just a week after the House voted the same way on the same measure, also in a largely party line vote. Biden swiftly vetoed the congressional attempt to end his student debt relief program. But today, after the Supreme Court dealt the final blow to his plan, the president took aim not just at the court, but at Republicans, those in Congress who have seemingly made it their mission this year to make sure that student loan recipients pay up every penny, despite the fact that these Republicans, the ones you see right there on the screen, have benefited from a certain loan forgiveness program themselves. We all supported the Paycheck Protection Program, remember PPP, you know, which was designed to help business owners who lost money because of the pandemic. It was a worthy program. But let's be clear, some of the same elected Republicans Members of Congress who strongly opposed giving release to students got hundreds of thousands of dollars themselves. Republican officials say student loan relief is a giveaway to the privileged. You hear that loud now, the privileged. (laughs) I love their concern for the privileged. Wow. Well, uh, Biden's criticism of the Republican lawmakers and conservative jurors who stymied his original plan, well, they might resonate with the 16 million Americans already approved for debt forgiveness. Biden did not stop there. In another part of his response to the Supreme Court ruling today, Biden actually laid out a plan, a plan B. Watch. I'm announcing today a new path consistent with today's ruling to provide student debt relief to as many borrowers as possible, as quickly as possible. We will ground this new approach in a different law than my original plan, the so-called Higher Education Act. That that will allow Secretary Cardona, who's with me today, to compromise, waive, or release loans under certain circumstances. We're not going to waste any time on this. We're getting moving on. It's going to take longer, but we're getting at it right away. Uh, Joining me now, Democratic Congresswoman from Pennsylvania, Summer Lee, a vocal advocate for student debt forgiveness who comes at the issue with her own personal story of grappling with student debt. Congresswoman Lee, uh, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for making time for us. Um, Let's start with this plan B announced today by uh, President Biden, that he will use the 1965 Higher Education Act to pursue student debt forgiveness for a second time. We're still uh, awaiting more details and full disclosure, but he did say that the plan is already underway. And for me, you know, it's kind of hard to forget President Trump because, you know, he tried multiple times to implement a number of draconian immigration restrictions, including the infamous Muslim ban. 
And he did so by executive order. Should Joe Biden use Trump as a sort of inverse model for this kind of White House policy fight? Listen, my hope is, is that we use whatever leverage point, every single tool that we have at our disposal to move on this issue, right? There's a lot of noise about how important student debt relief is, right? There is a contingent of folks who want us to believe that student debt relief is just something that's going to benefit some far off elite that is just lazy people who don't want to pay their own debts. But the reality is, is that a student loan debt is predatory, that the people who are most impacted are the very people who were just harmed by the Supreme Court ruling and the affirmative action cases. Black uh, students, particularly marginalized students, carry those burdens. We know that when we help students, we're actually helping our economy. We're helping our entire country. And it is a promise that our president has to keep because he made it to our voters who came out enthusiastically. We want to make sure that we're showing those American voters, those students who have loaned at millions of us, that our party, that our Democratic Party, our president, our government cares about us, that we're going to fight, that we're going to use everything. So listen, whether it's executive action or the authority through the HEA, we want to make sure that we're using everything to tackle this right now. Uh, You're saying us. You said us twice. Let me ask you about your own personal experience. You only have a handful of the four 435 members of the House who carry uh, student loan debt. You are among them. You've spoken before about how that debt you carry uh, affects every decision you make in your life. How are you feeling today? And do you have hope that uh, President Biden can actually get this done for you and others? I feel discouraged. I like so many other people who are watching these cases come down. We feel discouraged. We feel deflated. That's what we're supposed to feel. That's our immediate reaction. This is what the court, uh, this is what the robbers court, this is what the Republican Party has been fighting for to make us feel isolated, to make us feel like we're running out of options. That's why it was so important that President Biden speaks directly to us today as somebody who, who have very little hope of ever being free of this debt. Right. I know that there are so many more who might not even get the opportunity to attend colleges because of the because of the Supreme Court rulings. There's going to be generations, particularly of black women who are going to language whose brilliance will never be honed because of these rules, because of this ongoing fight to ensure that only certain students, only certain people get to go to college, get to have an education, get to pursue certain careers. These rulings, they send a message that, you know, black women aren't not just that we're not qualified because we are. It sends the message that we're not wanted in these institutions. Mm. It sends the message that if we are going to pursue these careers, that we're going to pay with it with a lifelong debt. I have hope that Biden is going to move, that President Biden is going to take action because he is taking action. But we know that we have to continue to encourage the administration. We know that we have to continue to hold it, uh, this administration accountable. And we can't let up on this one. It's going to be a lot of incentives to let up. But we have to make sure those of us who carry debt, that we are not allowing anyone to, 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 to back, uh, put this on the back burner right now. Do you see a connection between the two decisions over the past two days, not not in the ruling, but in their impact on yeah. uh, students of color, minorities and women? I mean, you, you, you have the court's decision to block the Biden's administration with the student, uh, the student debt forgiveness being rejected. And you have the affirmative action uh, decision that came out yesterday. I mean, together, do, do you worry that these two rulings will cement this country's already existing racial wealth gap? That is its intention. 
That is ex- that is absolutely the, the intention of these rulings, right? Again, I just mentioned that Black women are the largest uh, carriers of student loan debt. We disproportionately carry that burden. We are also the, uh, the group of folks who, for so many reasons throughout history, have been kept away from quality education. The focus is on affirmative action. But the reality is affirmative action was never on solid footing. We know that it was never long for this world. Our our, our opportunities, uh, any advantage that we might have was always at the whim of the makeup of the court. But it was always a Band-Aid to a gun wound, right? Uh, more than we need affirmative action. And with affirmative action, we need quality pre-K through K- through 12th you know, education. We need to make sure that every student, irrespective of their zip code, uh, can get a quality education, public education in the communities they call home. We need to make sure that Black students have access to appropriate books uh, and curriculum and educators, that they're in schools that don't have open asbestos and lead. Those are issues that predate this ruling, right? These all go hand in hand as this nation. And there are so many people who are gleeful about the idea of black students not being able to get a higher education. We're harming the entire nation. What we do to black people will be reflected in the future of our economy, the future of our national security. And we are throwing away so much talent, so much brilliance, so much opportunity for innovation by shutting and continuing to shut black students out. But this was what they asked for. This is what we are willing to do to keep black folks from upward mobility, from any uh, any measure of economic stability. And we will see the impacts of this from this ruling. That will be what happens. And now uh, through legislative action, through executive action, we have to take steps to counteract the damage that the court has chosen to inflict upon us. Yeah, I was going to say, as others have pointed out, the cruelty is the point in all of these measures. Uh, Congresswoman Summerlee, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Still lots more ahead tonight. How one of the big decisions handed down by the Supreme Court today may have involved a completely fictional gay couple. The reporter who broke that story joins me next. Stay with us. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. All right. So today, the six conservative justices on the Supreme Court uh, ruled that a Colorado graphic designer who wants to create wedding websites has the right to deny her services to same sex couples. Uh, That designer, a woman named Lori Smith, has not started her wedding website business yet, but says that her Christian faith prevents her from doing work that celebrates same sex marriage. 
Uh, Smith wants to post a statement explaining that her policy is actually uh, based on her religious beliefs. So she sued. She sued to get an exemption from Colorado's anti-discrimination law that prohibits discrimination against LGBTQ plus people by businesses that serve the public. Now, as this case was uh, making its way through the judicial process all the way up to the Supreme Court, Lori Smith's lawyers argued in a brief to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals that she had received a request from a prospective customer named Stuart inquiring about a website to celebrate his wedding to his fiancée, a person named Mike. Now, this week, as Supreme Court justices were set to decide whether Lori Smith should be able to turn someone like that alleged prospective customer named Stuart, uh, turn him away, a reporter at the New Republic decided to get his contact information from the publicly available filing and reach out to him to hear what he has to say, find out what was going on. And what he had to say was actually startling. Stewart claimed he never sent that inquiry. And at the time it was sent, he was married to a woman. Quote, I'm married. I have a child. I'm not really sure where that came from. But somebody is using false information in a Supreme Court filing document. He also questioned why he, a web designer living in San Francisco, would seek to hire someone in another state who has never built a wedding website, let alone a website for a same-sex wedding, to build his wedding website. So despite the very real questions raised by this reporting today, conservative justices went ahead and ruled in Lori Smith's favor and opened the door to discrimination against the LGBTQ plus community in this country. Here's what Justice Sonia Sotomayor said in her dissent, a dissent that she read aloud from the bench today to emphasize her disagreement. She wrote in part, quote, by issuing this new license to discriminate in a case brought by a company that seeks to deny same sex couples the full and equal enjoyment of its services. The immediate symbolic effect of the decision is to mark gays and lesbians for second class status. In this way, the decision itself inflicts a kind of stigmatic harm on top of any harm caused by denials of service. Joining me now is Melissa Jira Grant, staff writer at The New Republic, author of that report. Ms. Grant, thank you so much for being here. So I I have a lot of questions. I mean, this reporting was incredible, but let me start by just the basics, which how sure are you that the steward you spoke to is in fact telling the truth? Stuart, first of all, was very surprised to hear from me. Um, You know, when I came across this phone number and the filing, I kind of thought, you know, we've seen this in other cases and other instances of anti-queer and anti-trans discrimination. If someone's notorious for that, sometimes they get trolled or spammed. That's what I thought I was calling about. That's what I thought I was going to hear. And instead, I talked to this very sweet, progressive guy who's shocked to even hear from me. I was shocked. I mean, I expected it to be like, oh, I've been called by like, you know, five reporters, 10 reporters over the years. My number has been floating around since 2016. Nothing. Um, And in fact, he was aware of the case, but only when it was argued at the Supreme Court, because the web design and design community were discussing it in the context of their own work and what it might mean. So given the fact that this is an inquiry made with his real name, real phone number, real email address, um, and real URL for his company at the time, which was all publicly available, I think the chances are more likely that somebody used his identity. If he was going to do this in a fraudulent way or in a harassing way, 
why would he do so under his own mm. identity? It just doesn't make sense. So uh, Kristen Wagoner, the president of the conservative Christian legal nonprofit alliance Defending Freedom, uh, and the lawyer who argued this before the Supreme Court, uh, responded to your reporting on a press call earlier, uh, and she called it untrue. I want to play for you and our viewers just a part of what she had to say. Listen. Lori received a website request, design request from a third party. Even Colorado agreed. It's not her responsibility, nor is she able to do background checks on those who she's receiving these requests from, because Colorado has told her that if she declines in any way a request like this, she puts herself in the crosshairs of this law. Um, so again, the, it's undisputed that the request was received. It was re received by a third party, whether that was a troll and not a genuine request, or it was someone who was looking for that. You alluded to that in your first answer, but can you just, what is your response to having heard that now? Honestly, it's the first I've heard from ADF. You know, I sent them questions before my story published. They didn't respond to them. I pressed them again today, and their response was to send me a link to a thread that they had made on Twitter. Um, I think Ms. Wagoner's responses there are fairly misleading. You know, if we want to talk about what Colorado decided, we had a federal court in Colorado say that this inquiry didn't feel like it provided evidence of any customers. You know, one of the things that Alliance Defending Freedom is, you know, part of an openly anti-queer and anti-trans project. One of the things they've been misleading the public into thinking is that this wasn't about whether or not there was a real inquiry. It was that her speech was like restrained before the fact. Um, and that someday if someone wanted her services, they would not be able to do that because of the law. But that's simply not true. And I don't believe that she would be violating the law simply by doing what I did and picking up the phone and, you know, checking it out. Hi, this is Stuart. Are you part of a same-sex couple? You know, maybe she was scared she'd be putting herself in legal peril. I don't know what she was advised mm. by Lines Defending Freedom. Um, but it's shocking to me what Stuart told me, that not only has he not heard from reporters, he's never heard from anyone trying to check this out. Just the smallest, it's not a background check to pick up the phone, right? I, I think that there were a lot of questions about this case, feeling like it was built on essentially hypotheticals. You know, someday, somewhere, a same-sex couple might ask for this service. And so it totally lines up for me anyway to see this inquiry as part of that much bigger picture that Alliance Defending Freedom is essentially defending somebody from something that has not happened yet, yeah. but she thinks might happen. Uh, it is quite remarkable. I mean, when you put it in the context of everything else that the Supreme Court is under scrutiny for, that this particular detail in this case had been uh, overlooked. Uh, Melissa Jira Grant, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks again. Uh, still ahead tonight, the latest on the special counsel's investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, we are learning more about those who are cooperating with the prosecutors. That story straight ahead. All right. So today in Philadelphia, after making a speech to a national gathering of Moms for Liberty, the newest powerhouse in right wing politics, Former President Donald Trump made an off-the-record stop at none other than Pat's Steakhouse, a popular Philly cheesesteak shop. And he shook hands and took pictures like he normally does. He also ordered the famous cheese whiz with onions and bought everyone at the stop a cheesesteak as well. Uh, also joining the former president was this guy. You may recognize him by now. Walt Nauta, Trump's valet and alleged co-conspirator in the Mar-a-Lago criminal probe. Not sure if Nada got a cheesesteak, too, and whether or not the president paid for it. But it is not a bad idea for Trump to 
keep a little, uh, keep a distance between Nada and not to keep him too far away. After all, it was in part because of Nada's text messages that prosecutors were able to gather so much information about how Trump handled classified information at Mar-a-Lago. So flipping Nada would be a big deal. Besides, you can never be too careful since others apparently already have made the switch. CNN reported last night that a former Trump campaign official named Mike Roman, the same guy who tried to physically deliver fake certificates of electors to former Vice President Mike Pence ahead of January 6th, that guy you see there is now collaborating with the special counsel's team in its other ongoing criminal probe, the one related to the 2020 election. And according to CNN, Roman entered what is known as a proffer agreement, a sort of uh, legal contract in which defendants basically agree to provide prosecutors with useful information if the statements made are not then used against them in future criminal proceedings. And that's not all. Uh, We actually learned this week that Rudy Giuliani, the person that spearheaded Trump's bogus claims of election fraud in court, has been interviewed by the special counsel's team. Giuliani A told CNN the interview was, quote, voluntary. Giuliani, if you remember, is also a target in D.A. Fonnie Willis's investigation in Georgia, which is a probe looking into a separate effort to overturn the results from the 2020 election in that state. Now, whether Trump himself is also a target, we honestly don't know for sure. But today, the former president confirmed he thinks he is a target of Willis's investigation. He also predicted somehow that the charges against him in Georgia will be dropped. Don't ask us how, why he made that statement. Joining me now is Tali Farhadian Weinstein. She is a former federal prosecutor and state prosecutor. She's also an MSNBC legal analyst. Talia, it's great to see you again. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. So uh, let me ask you about January 6th. I mean, we know that uh, Rudy Giuliani was interviewed by the special counsel. We now know that uh, Mark Roman, who played a key role in the fake electoral plot as well, um, is cooperating in this agreement. What does that signal to you at this moment in the investigation? Well, it tells us that Jack Smith is really busy because at the same time that he's going full speed ahead in the documents case, he's also working up the January 6th case. And the Giuliani appearance in a proffer is interesting. We don't know what it means, but we could make some educated guesses. And remember, Giuliani was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. So... He knows better than anybody what to do and how to help himself. And one possibility is that he is working his way toward a cooperation agreement, because when you decide to make an agreement as the government with somebody where they would plead guilty to whatever crimes they've committed in exchange for leniency, you have to have a series of proffers along the way in which that person tells you everything they've ever done that was wrong, and you decide if you believe them and if you want to work with them. And so that's one possibility for what's going on. Here. Okay, so you bring up a really interesting point yeah. about Rudy Giuliani wanting to tell us everything that he's yeah. doing. Let's put up this tweet. Um, he retweeted this CNN article that basically uh, talks about him going to meet with the special prosecutor. Um, it's an article that basically confirmed that he was interviewed uh, and voluntarily nonetheless. What do you think he's trying to tell us with the fact that he retweeted that article? So that was curious, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, he definitely has some kind of PR. Is that his way of like, I'm afraid to tell here. Donald Trump that I did this, but hopefully he'll see it on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, it's 
I mean, to go inside of his mind yeah. is is. Tri- I would never ask you is, to do that, right? Is tricky, but he he does seem to want to emphasize one that his appearance at the proffer sessions was voluntary, which actually doesn't really tell us very much because proffers are by definition voluntary. It just means that you have volunteered to meet with prosecutors outside of the grand jury without a subpoena and tell them what you know, hope you get something out of it or just do the right thing. And he also wanted to put out there that he has not been told that he is a subject mm. the investigation, which is Hard to believe because subject is really broadly defined. Right. It just means that your conduct is in the scope of what they're looking at. So I, I think that's actually kind of a clever thing on his part mm. because what he said is he wasn't told he was a subject. Well, if you don't ask, then yeah. you aren't <laughs> told. It doesn't mean you are not a right. subject. And that's actually kind of a common thing that defendants do when they kind of want to manage the optics of what they're doing. Let me ask you about this reporting yesterday from the New York Times that a grand jury in Miami um, mm-hmm. basically, you know, um, has received a fresh batch of uh, subpoenas in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. How do you read that? What does that tell us? So it just tells me that they're continuing to investigate. And in the federal system, it's actually really easy to supersede an indictment. So to add new charges or to add new defendants or to add both. You know, when I think of any serious case that I brought, I can't think of a time where I didn't supersede the indictment. In Mm. some way, you learn new things, you keep going, there's an obligation to keep going. It's important that it's happening in Miami. So this doesn't mean that there's some... New Jersey, for example. Exactly. How would that be different if something was happening in New Jersey? Well, if they were looking at the conduct around that tape of Donald Trump waving the document around, then they would probably have to venue that, locate that case in Bedminster, in New Jersey. Mm. And and so this tells me that they're still working on potential crimes that happened around Mar-a-Lago. A lot of developments. We'll see what happens. It was kind of like pushed aside a little bit with everything coming out of the Supreme Court, but nonetheless, it's going to be important. A lot of law news today. (laughs) A lot of law news. We're grateful for your expertise, Kelly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Still ahead tonight, it was a Republican political stunt that cost tens of millions of dollars using, yep, shipping containers to erect a makeshift border wall in Arizona. But now, guess what? You at home can be a part of fixing that mess. I'll explain. Uh, Last summer, Arizona's then-Governor Republican Doug Ducey issued an executive order to fill so-called gaps along the U.S.-Mexico border wall. And he started piling shipping containers along the southern border. It was a political stunt that cost nearly $100 million just to stack the containers on top of each other. Residents and environmental activists spent weeks protesting the makeshift barrier, blocking further work on it, because not only was the wall a nuisance, it actually disturbed endangered species in the region. And federal officials sued Arizona, alleging that the wall was illegally built on federal land. About a week later, in the waning days of Doug Ducey's term as governor, Arizona agreed to start dismantling the wall. The whole putting up and taking down of the wall could cost Arizona taxpayers up to, wait for it, $200 million. Now the state is trying to actually get some of its money back, or hopefully at least 2% of that, to basically clean up the mess left behind by her Republican predecessor, Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs' administration, is putting the containers up for sale to government entities and nonprofits. 
But come October, anything that is left will be available to you, the public, for sale. So long as you don't mind a little wear, faded paint, or rust, and don't actually care about what color shipping container you get, yes, you can buy yourself a piece of messy, expensive, and quite honestly, shameful Arizona political history for as little as $500. And for that same low, low price, you also get a metaphor for Republican governance by this ill-conceived stunt. That does it for us tonight. 